Um, if you came uh, expecting to hear a Bible study in the book of Romans, that's what you're going to get, a Bible study in the book of Romans, beginning in, in Romans chapter 4. However, what I did last week is say this, um, and I, I'm going to do this hurriedly, but um, um, in, in my preparation and study, one of the things that I asked myself as I prepared is, um, why was Paul so eager to write such a, um, a clear document concerning this doctrine of justification by faith? And I came up with two answers. Number one, he certainly wanted to reach his Jewish brethren that had not yet uh, prayed to receive Jesus Christ. He was writing this letter in hopes that the, it would turn the tide in the, min, in the midst of so many of his brethren uh, according to the flesh, that is, uh, Judaism. He was hoping that they would hear the truth and respond to it. The other part of his motivation, I'm suggesting, is this, that there was a concern on the part of the Apostle Paul um, <clears throat> for people who had been converted but who had come from backgrounds and environments that had emphasized nothing but performance. People who had come from Judaism, where they had been told that their performance would, would make them admissible to heaven. And so, <clears throat> this pastor, this grand pastor, the Apostle Paul, is concerned about converted people whose whole life had been trained to perform well. And so, um, because they had been trained all of their lives, they, they're, from beginning to end, the issue was performance, how you perform, do you perform well, etc., etc. <clears throat> the, um, the concern of the, of the Apostle Paul is that converted people would miss out on what it means to live by grace. What did that mean? <clears throat> I'm almost well, y'all. I'm, I'm just talking. Um, Ford Carter came up to me at, at supper and said, I have a hearing aid, and every time you cough, you rock my brain. <clears throat> so I'm trying to really, you know, get it over here when, <clears throat> poor guy. <clears throat> But so the pastor of Paul is concerned that converted people do not know, they under, I mean, these converted people know that they're saved by grace, but know very little about living by grace. And their whole training heretofore had been performance. And so, okay, I'm saved by grace by receiving the gift of eternal life, fine. But now that I've stepped inside the kingdom, I've got to really perform well. And the more I perform, the better God will love me, and the less I perform, the less he will love me, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so, what I'm suggesting is, using Romans 4 as my, as my prompt, we're going to spend several weeks really not on a verse-by-verse -verse study of, um, of Romans. We're going uh, to finish Romans 4 this semester, Lord willing, but what we're going to do is spend several weeks, maybe seven, eight weeks, on what it means to live by grace. I'm not talking about entering the kingdom by grace. I'm talking about people who have already done that. What does it mean? And what does it mean to people who from front to back have learned the message of performance? Ladies and gentlemen, I dare say we're worse than Jews, than Judaism. Because we have been trained to perform and perform up to a standard. And so because we have, 
there is a lot of things that are at stake, and I'll, I'll try to mention one of those tonight. Now, I want to begin, that was my introduction, that's really what I said last night, or last week, uh, preparing us to enter this study of uh, living by grace. Uh, if I ever write a book, um, it will be on this subject, and I would entitle it, The Society of Minton Cummin. You know the text in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, You guys, you guys are, are messed up. You tie the mint and the coming, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law. You have assumed that a certain thing makes or renders you spiritual when in fact you missed the real things that are um, spiritual in nature. Um, now, <clears throat> I want to begin by offering you a challenge. Because I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is not going to be any ordinary study for the next seven or eight weeks. We live in an age of anti-intellectualism. In fact, I say to you, um, it is almost considered in the church to be unspiritual, to be intellectual. Now, I'm not saying that only the church is guilty. The, uh, politics, education, in fact, um, uh, postmodernism... Um, is undercutting everything that is an intellectual pursuit because they say that no truth is really available. Um, people in the church are afraid of discourse and dialogue and debate because it divides. Um, and I, I think they're, they, they're not, they don't know how to engage in debate and dialogue and discourse, primarily because of TV. We have learned to be entertained. People don't read, they don't study, they don't think. They don't reason um, because it is just too hard. And so they come to church and I think in many occasions, on many occasions, move their brains into some kind of intellectual neutral. And they experience the whole thing and get up and leave and have never yet grasped what's been said. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, over the next several weeks, to grasp what I'm going to say is going to require some intellectual engagement. You are, if you're going to did it. You are going to have to, very frankly, we might even tire you out some in here, and that would be good. If, if I can present this well, which you can pray that I will, there should be such a drain um, on you that you'll sense, gosh, you know, my, I need to get out and give us some fresh air here. I need to think this through. I am challenging you to gird up the loins of your mind. Um, the problem today is not that people don't think enough about Jesus. They don't think enough about anything. <coughs> and they pay me a uh, very enormous salary to do their thinking for them. Um, I, I'm afraid that Christians like to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And that's really all I want to know. And this is going to require far more of you than that. I, I promise you. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, the argument is intricate. And we're not going to get it right. We're, n we're not going to get it down perfectly. But I'm going to do my best. Um, I remember years ago, one of my heroes was a guy, is a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. I've told you that. But I remember him saying to me one time, he said, the biggest problem in the church in the Christian church is sensuality. 
And I thought, well, you know, yeah, that's right. People running around in lust. And he said, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about sexual sin. It's sensuality. That is, they only want to do those things that do not require, that, that feel good to the flesh. Remember, I've told you this story before about uh, when I was in seminary, I played tennis a lot. And um, I was a fairly decent tennis, tennis player in, in uh, seminary. And so the seminary held a tournament. And um, being, I was a, kind of a lay tennis player. And, you know, you, you had these matches and you moved up. And, and I made it to the championship game. I beat everybody except this one dude. And um, this one dude's name was Jimmy Meisner. And Jimmy Meisner had gone to uh, college on a tennis scholarship and had, uh, was a tennis teacher. And so he took me out on the court one afternoon, and I'm telling you, he beat me as bad as you can be beaten. It was two straight sets, 6-0, 6-0. It took about uh, 12 minutes to, to complete this whole thing. And um, if he could have beat me 6, negative 17, he, he would have. And he ran me back and forth across that court. He was just toying with me, you know, like a little, man. ooh, watch this, get him over there. You know, look at that fool running around like that. It was, it was, it was awful. So, I mean, the, the match lasted 12 minutes, and it's supposed to last, uh, you know, an hour. And so he decided, you know, Jimmy, would you like a, um, um, a tennis lesson? I said, well, sure, if you could help me out here. You know, I thought I was pretty good, and, and I, I was not. And anyway, so he started, he came over, and he showed me how to serve. Turns out that my grip on the tennis racket was backwards. Boy. <coughs> 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 I told you I'd warn you. Um, and so he, you know, he rotated my grip around to this way or that way, I forget. And so he brought all these tennis balls over that he uses in his tennis lessons. And he said, okay, you know, you just start throwing up some balls and serving them, you know. And so, um, uh, you know, I threw up, and, and, and in all honesty, this is the honest truth, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, he was down there, and I threw the ball up to serve it, and the ball went that way. And, and he says, you know, and I threw it again and went that way and threw it again. And he said, well, you know, I got to go. <laughs> um, uh, you just keep working on that. You just keep working, you know, just to, you know, you. Well, I did for about six minutes. And then I said, I ain't doing this no more. This ain't fun. I'm going back to my other grip, you know, because it felt good. And as a result, I don't play tennis anymore. And um, haven't played in years, and if I were to go out there, would embarrass myself and you. That's the point, ladies and gentlemen. We don't like it if it if it requires us to wrestle through things. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, there are things that are going to be said in here that are going to convict the socks off of many of you because because we've we've all of us, and, and very frankly, ladies and gentlemen. We're all guilty. We're all in this together because we were all trained the same way. The training was put a nickel in, expect a nickel's worth out. Do this and get that. And it has produced a great deal uh, of unfortunate ugliness, um, I think. And not only ugliness, but missing out on the, the way the way we're supposed to be living as believers. So that's my challenge to you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm inviting you to think through this thing with me over the next few weeks. Um, let me give you a, um, let me give you a, uh, uh, what do you call this thing? It's a, I remember, I don't know whether any of you ever came from First Evan, 
But it was uh, Dwayne Lipman. When I first moved to town in 1985, Dwayne Lipman was the senior pastor at First, uh, First Evangelical Church. And um, Dwayne Lipman took me out. He, he befriended me for some reason. I don't know why. He felt sorry for me. And uh, he, um, we would go out to lunch periodically. And I remember this. I got this from him. And and um, hey, let me let me just kind of quote it to you, and then I'll try to diagram it. He said, "Simplicity on the other side of complexity is acceptable, but simplicity without complexity is pagan and unacceptable." Do you understand, guys? If you if you um, work through complexity and arrive at simplicity, wonderful. But if you arrive at simplicity without the complexity, it's unacceptable, ladies and gentlemen. And much, you know, uh, I have a friend who was a, he played quarterback at the University of Florida um, back in the uh, early 70s, and then went on to be a Rhodes Scholar, and Billy Kynes. I don't know if you ever heard the name Billy Kynes, a wonderful Christian pastor. And, and he said one time, and I'm quoting Billy, he said, it takes all the intellect I can muster to live simply. It takes all the intellect I can muster to live simply. Now my point is, guys, I hope that we do come to a simple position, but after complexity. And without the complexity, and, and see, I think that's what the Christian church has done. We've avoided the complexity, because it, it's not it's not particularly fun. That is the complexity part. And um, very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, Many of us are unteachable. We don't want to be taught anything new. We got it all down and it's all nice and comfortable and we don't want to be taught anything new. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're about to get into some stuff that, um, that I think is absolutely thrilling. And I hope it will be for you. Um, and I hope I can, by God's grace, make it that way. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the, to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. And we are ready to commence. I'm being careful, Mike. I'm about to do something here that is going to require a leap. You're going to have to leap with me. I don't think it's an, um, a, a, a terrible leap, and I think it's a logical leap, but I'm going to leap. And you're going to have to go with me, or we're going to, I'm going to leave you behind in this whole um, argument. Let's begin at verse 5 of Matthew 6. I want to read you through um, verse 8. Yes. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the corners of streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your, your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have needed before you ask him. In this manner, uh, therefore, pray, and we get the Lord's Prayer. Now, the issue in this little paragraph has to do with prayer and how to pray. Um, I am suggesting that this text gives us an illustration of the things that you and I have to avoid when it comes to Christian living. There are two extremes that we are going to have to avoid. And, very frankly, one of the extremes we're more guilty of than the other extreme, in, in my opinion. Um, there are two things that Jesus says. 
that you are not, I mean, when you get ready to pray, don't pray like this. Don't pray like that hypocritai. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Now, um, uh, it's interesting. Do you know the word that the term or, or the idea hypocrite? The word hypocrite comes from. It comes from ancient Greek plays. Have you ever heard that? Um, what would happen in the ancient Greek plays is an actor would take a large mask. Uh, and let's say you know you've seen those things on, on NBC in the grinning mask, and he would come out and hide behind this little grinning mask, and he would quote all of his comedic lines, and the and the audience would roar with laughter. Then he would go backstage, and he would get a, a another. Um, a mask that was frowning and, and this oversized thing that would cover his face and then he would come back quoting all these tragic lines and the audience would moan and weep and groan etc etc now guess what that guy was called he was called a hypocritas he was called a hypocrite because he was one who lived behind a mask he lived his life out behind the mask. Now, here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. Notice in verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Now, so Jesus is saying, if when you get ready to pray, there's one extreme that I want you to avoid. Do not. Do not pray like hypocrites. Because hypocrites are people whose number one desire is to be seen of men. They are people who hide behind certain appearances so that you will think highly of them. Don't pray like those guys who love to be seen in long flowing gowns, robes, and standing on street corners. Don't pray like that. Now, guys, but you will notice at, in verse 7, he says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, what is Jesus denouncing in, this, in terms of the form of prayer? It's a prayer that does nothing but repeat words. And, ladies and gentlemen, um, there is a particular group that some of you might be familiar with that does that. They, um, they continue to repeat things and repeat them and repeat them and repeat them because they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Don't pray like that. By the way, look at one other text with me in Matthew 6, verse 16, because you see it again. Moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. So there is a group of people out there, ladies and gentlemen, that are performing certain religious functions, and their number one goal in the performance of those religious functions was what? To be seen of men. Now, ladies and gentlemen, draw upon your whole Here's the leap. Here's the leap. Draw upon your whole knowledge of the New Testament. And these people are often 
in the teaching of Jesus Christ, and who are they? Pharisees. Pharisees. There's my leap. I'm saying <clears throat> Jesus does not use the word Pharisee here. He uses the word hypocritai. And yet, in numerous of his other discussions, you might remember, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he goes on to define what the, what their, what the leaven was. And they thought they were, Jesus was talking about bread. And Jesus says, no, but it's their hypocrisy. Now, what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that you are not to pray like a Pharisee. Now, so the Pharisees... Number one spiritual flaw is his, his hypocrisy, well said. It is his desire to be seen of men and to appear spiritual. He is eager for people to consider him spiritual. And so he does all kinds of things. He prays, he fasts, he, he gives alms. So that people can see it. And you know, when he goes to give his money, he rattles the cage so that everybody can see how much he's putting in. The number one flaw of the... And by the way, <clears throat> here's another term that I'm going to use as a synonym, and I think it's a, it's a good one. A legalist. That's what Pharisees were big at. Their legalism. Um, <clears throat> the number one flaw, his major... Wrong is one of self-glory. Um, <clears throat> he has a ravenous hunger and appetite for the praise of men. He has a desire to be highly esteemed among, among spiritual people. And guys, it is a position, it is an approach to spirituality that promotes a, a kind of a um, make a good impression, uh, appearances is everything, phony baloney kind of um, mindset. Um, to the Pharisee, working for something and deserving it is very near and dear to his heart. Doing something... And uh, allowing people to say, well, of course, he's because he is spiritual. Because, how do I know? Have you seen him pray on the street corner? Have you seen how much he gives? How do you see how he gives alms? And that's, that's the heartbeat of the Pharisee. It is the heartbeat of the legalist that he appear to be spiritual. It is the sin of self-glory, ladies and gentlemen, that is fundamental to a pharisaical, legalistic approach to Christian living. Now you got the other guy, the, um, the heathen, the pagans. Now what is the heathen and the pagan? How do they pray? They just pray absolutely mindlessly. How do they pray? They dabble. Just a diarrhea of words. Words flowing because they think they will be heard by the, the amount of their words. 
There is, <clears throat> interestingly enough, ladies and gentlemen, right after Jesus says this, he gives us the Lord's Prayer. What Jesus does is provide content and structure and direction to praying. Because for the heathen, for the pagan, he had no structure. He had no rules. He had <clears throat> All he did was rattle off words. Guys, have you ever been in a Christian uh, meeting where somebody played in public and they started a sentence and never finished it and then raced off to something else? I want to say, um, um, could you complete the sentence at least for us? I mean, they are praying and they are using spiritual words, but there is nonsense coming out of their mouths. Nothing that has direction to it. Nothing that has... They are just multiplying words. That, ladies and gentlemen, is praying like a pagan. Because pagans multiply words but don't say anything. Now, here's my next leap. Are you ready? Jesus uses the word heathen. I'm saying that the number one error of the heathen was his mindlessness... And his mindlessness was a derivative of his giving no thought to form or direction or structure. He became a law unto himself. I will pray any way I want to pray. Um, <clears throat> nobody's going to tell me how to pray. I'll pray the way I want to pray when I pray. He doesn't want to think through or reason or because there is nothing that will provide a structure, a background, a, a, a form for him. No standards, that is, no standards that he will accept as, as uh, the final arbiter of the truth. The only standard is himself. I belong to myself. No one has authority to require any obedience from me. And if I want to pray with nothing but mindlessness and nothing but babbling and, and, and multiplying words, that's my prerogative. Because... Nobody can tell me how to pray. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is the spirit of antinomianism. Antinomianism is a word, anti, which means against. Nomos comes from a Greek word, nomos, which means law. An antinomian is one who says, no law, no structure. I am the structure. I am the final arbiter of the truth. I will direct how it is that I live. Now, um, if I haven't lost you, here's what I'm suggesting. Here's what I'm doing. I'm saying that in Christian living, there are two dangers. And Jesus says that we must avoid them both. There is the danger of living legally, pharisaically, and on the other end of the spectrum, the opposite of that extreme is the danger of living as an antinomian. That is, the Christian who says there is no law, there is no structure, there is no, um, I, I am a law unto myself. 
and the professing believer who says, the thing um, that makes people spiritual is abiding by certain rules and laws that, that I determine are right. And therefore, he performs his, his Christian living so that he can be seen and people can conclude that he is a spiritual entity. Now, I've used this text to say all, all of that to say this. Neither one. Don't live like this. Don't live like that. Avoid them both. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, in the Christian church, we are guilty of both ends of that spectrum. I, I have to say that we're more frequently guilty of this one particularly in evangelicalism because we know that there's you know we just can't go out and live any way you want to live but here are two extremes that have influenced us and I say to you the one that has influenced us the most is the extreme of living pharisaically and you must understand that the major flaw of living pharisaically is the flaw of self-glory. I want to be considered spiritual in my group. Now, gang, real quick, and I'm, I'm finished. Those are the two terms that you have to keep in mind for the rest of the, our time together. What I'm going to do is spend six or seven weeks coming back and analyzing Phariseeism and antinomianism, the two extremes to avoid. And then when we finish, by the time we finish, that is eight weeks from now or whatever, I want to offer you the third option. That is how it is that Christianity is supposed to be fleshed out and lived out. Now, I want you to know this is a book that's in our bookstore. It is excellent. It is only, all it does is analyze this one. It doesn't analyze this one. But um, one of our Sunday school classes studied this book. Uh, Richard Savori found this book, and he gave it to me, and the, the, his Sunday school class studied it. It is excellent. But I want you to know, you're going to find yourself in here. I mean, guys, and I, and I mean, I found myself in here. Notice the title, 12 Steps for the Recovering Pharisee Like Me. I'm a recovering Pharisee, ladies and gentlemen. And I think many of you are too. This will help you. And um, we're going to analyze it down to the nth degree. And I'm going to draw some of this, some of the stuff. I'm going to draw it. I'm going to out of this book. You might want to pick up one of these. I think you'll find it a, a much better treatment than the one you're going to hear from me. But that's where we are. That's where we're headed. And by the time we're finished, we will have denounced that one. We will have denounced that one. And then we'll come up with something that I think will hopefully guide us as to how our, our relationship to Jesus Christ is to be fleshed out. Let's quit. Our Father, um, guard these people from me. Guard them from hearing things that are wrong. And Father, if, if, I, um, if I give them wrong information, I pray that not a person, not a soul here will hear it that you'll stop up their minds somehow or give them or distract them so that they miss it and that they'd never walk out of here with anything that is in violation of your word. But Father, 
if what is being said in here is in accord with your word, might your people absolutely flourish under its teaching. Not under my teaching, Lord. Under its teaching. Give me the fullness of the Holy Spirit to handle your word correctly so that your people can find all that which is joyful and all that which is dutiful in the life that we love, hoping that that life will give glory and bring pleasure to the thrice holy God. Now dismiss his father with a sense of your ownership. We want to know that we are yours and you are ours. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night and hope to see you next week. We'll proceed in this discussion.